Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. One of my favorite things about having this podcast are the two-way conversations that I get to have with those of you who listen to the podcast. It's not in the same way. I mean, I do get to have two-way conversations and interviews, and those are also one of my favorite things. But when you reach out to me via LinkedIn messages or email and let me know that a specific podcast episode was really helpful or made an impact or you just tell me that you really enjoy listening to the podcast. It makes my day and it really helps me continue this because not every day am I getting up going, oh, I cannot wait to record a podcast episode or to write the show description or to book a guest. But those are all because of your encouragement and support. I do it happily because I know that this episode is listened to on a consistent basis by probably more people than I actually individually know. And I am just so grateful for that. One of the people who reached out to me recently and who I've gotten to since connect with and learn from and really be inspired by their ideas and hard work is Haley Wyndham. And you're going to get a chance to listen in on a conversation I had with Haley recently. Today is going to be part one. Thursday episode will be part two. Not surprisingly, because it's me and I like to dive into the details. And Haley and I have a lot in common, including our passion for fraud education and collaboration and also our love of talking and getting into the details. So it is going to be another two-parter, but I have no doubt that you're going to want to listen to both parts because both of the topics that we discuss in today's episode as well as on Thursdays are things that I know so many of us in general struggle with. And I think hearing ideas of how some people have accomplished it or had successes in these areas can inspire us. And you may not do exactly what they did, but it'll make you think, oh, maybe I could adapt it this way or that way. So I first wanted to share the first note that Haley reached out to me on LinkedIn with just because it really was unique and different than any other comment and email I've received from a listener. And it was just, it really made me want to get to know her more. And I have a feeling it will do the same for you. So she started out, this was in May of this year. Hello, I just wanted to share with you how grateful I am for the work you are doing. In July 2021, I created an employee exclusive podcast for my credit union titled The T. I usually interview employees and demonstrate how ultimately their job ties back to fraud in some way, shape, or form. My episode for May will be the first episode that I don't have a guest, and it's just me giving facts like a case study. I accredited the solo episode to you and the work you're doing on your podcast. If you have a spare 16 minutes to listen to it, I'd be honored to hear your thoughts. So of course I had to listen to this. And unlike Fraudology, this podcast is not open to everyone. It's just internally in her credit unions network. So she shared a, a link to Dropbox and I listened to it. And I legitimately teared up the first couple of minutes. It was so genuine and passionate. And she credited not only Fraudology, the podcast, but Fraudology, the term of diving into the science and study of fraud. And she talked about a case study of secret shopper scams that truthfully, I didn't know half of the details of how they worked the way that she shared them. And I am working on hopefully getting that episode of the tea added to the second part of our interview for Thursday. So keep your fingers crossed for me or with us. And uh, I think, you know, she's trying to dot her eyes, cross her T's, get some approval there. But I think that will be really fun. But first, in this episode, we talk a lot about getting employees outside of your team. So cross-functional teams and leadership on board with understanding the importance of fraud and how really there's a through line of fraud prevention as well as fraud or opportunities for prevention, I guess I should say, throughout every department within your company, whether you're at a bank or a credit union or another type of financial institution, 
or you're an e-commerce merchant or a marketplace or a fintech. Every department has a little bit that they bump up against fraud. And if they just knew a little bit better, they could help prevent more. And it's this more holistic approach of going to the root cause rather than having the fraud department kind of sit in a dark corner and work on things that nobody really understands or knows. So first, I'll tell you a little bit about Haley, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. So just this week, Haley was named one of the top 20 professionals under 40 by the Chamber of Commerce in Sumter, South Carolina, her hometown. I am blown away by how much she has taken opportunities to shine this year. Female fraud fighters especially, oftentimes we can feel a lot more comfortable being behind a computer and not really being the focus. I have struggled with that my whole career, and I'm just so proud of her to see her taking these opportunities to shine. And she was approached to be part of this list and it's being announced this week. So that is so exciting. But professionally, she's a certified fraud examiner and the Financial Crimes Investigations Officer for Safe Federal Credit Union. Since Haley's been there in 2020, well, the end of 2020, she's implemented several programs within her organization to holistically learn about and prevent fraud targeting their members, as well as their employees in the financial institution. She's passionate about education, educating her organization, and members about prevalent scams and ways to avoid them and keep themselves safer, but also outside of her org and into her community. And even at the state level, I've been blown away by some of the initiatives she's done, and she's going to talk all about them in the next two episodes. You'll learn more about some of these impressive initiatives in part two of our conversation, and Haley has a call to action for everyone listening to the podcast. I love her initiative. Prior to Safe Credit Union, Haley was at a smaller community bank called the Bank of Clarendon. I hope I said that right, where she started as a teller. And as she'll share in our conversation today, she worked her way up to fraud coordinator position as she fell in love with being a fraud fighter. I have no doubt that so many of you are going to just fall in love with Haley and her passion for fraud. It's infectious. So as I mentioned on this first part of the conversation, we'll talk a little bit about how Haley got started in fraud and what about it made her decide this is going to be my career. This is more than just a career. It's a calling and a passion. She'll talk about some of the duties and responsibilities in her role of financial crimes investigations officer at her credit union, how she has transformed the role she was hired for into from one that doesn't really fight fraud in a black box, right? That instead, it's one that educates and empowers their staff to be a part of the fight. Haley's initiatives within her organization to build strong relationships and partnerships throughout her credit union have led to countless success stories from helping members identify scams before they're victimized to empowering frontline staff staff to report suspicious activity that can often be the deciding factor in a fraud case. When you're looking back and you see notes from someone who talked to the person face to face and might have seen that they were uncomfortable or there was somebody new accompanying them. It's really cool how she built their internal see something, say something reporting structure and the rewarding that they give employees to encourage them to do it. I have already shared some of these takeaways from this conversation with a couple of people that are on the merchant side, as well as one person on the financial institution side that I've talked to since having this conversation with Haley. And they've been like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that before. So I really think that a lot of these things will are actionable and things that can be applied in so many different types of companies. And then we'll also talk about how she got started working with internal teams and the initiatives she championed based on what she learned from various departments and how these steps have led to the entire organization not only understanding the value and impact of the fraud team and, and fraud initiatives, but to include them in conversations sooner than they would have otherwise. So I think I've hyped up this conversation enough that it's just time to dive right in. But as you will tell, Haley's passion is infectious. I really am excited to hear from all of you who may have a takeaway from this episode of how you can start to work to build those internal relationships with other teams. I know from experience, it is not all sunshine and rainbows, but a lot of times we have to take the first step and we have to humble ourselves and learn from them first and provide value and that can build a relationship. And so there's so many great tactical ideas in this first conversation. And in the second conversation, we're going to talk a lot more about the internal podcast, the T and what it stands for, as well as what she's working on her state within the U.S., the state of Carolina, 
She's been actually working with the governor's office on recognizing fraud and fraud awareness, as well as some national programs she's working on. And I can tell she's just getting started. So with that, we'll let you listen in on the first part of my conversation with Haley Windham at Safe Credit Union. And I look forward to you hearing the second part on Thursday. Today, I am so happy to welcome Haley Windham to the Fraudology Podcast. Haley, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining me. I am also so glad to be here. Well, we've talked about this for a little while and admittedly, my squirrel brain has been all over the place, but I'm so glad that you are sitting here, at least on Zoom, in front of me. And I think there's so many things that people are going to take away from our conversation. I have really enjoyed getting to know you over the last few months and hearing just how excited you are about fraud education internally and externally in your company. So let's just dive right in and have you share how did you get started in fraud? Yeah, let's do it. I feel like all fraud fighters begin the same way. You know, we just fall into it. So I began my career in banking at a local hometown bank as a teller, actually, in 2014. Um, In 2015, I was promoted to the bookkeeping department and eventually was responsible for overseeing all deposit operation functions. You know, being in a smaller institution, it was a true benefit for me and for my future career in fraud fighting because I learned to wear many hats. I can hear the fraud fighters now, the skeptics, thinking that's a quick jump from teller to all of that. Well, they've never met Miss Libby. So Miss Libby was the ultimate mentor for a newbie banker, right? One day I was working on the teller line and I was asked to assist bookkeeping with a few daily reports. They were short staffed at the time, but I completed the work and gave it back to Miss Libby and went back to teller row. Miss Libby saw my potential and requested my transfer shortly after. And so from that moment, she began to pour into me this wealth of knowledge. She'd been in banking for over 40 years and is literally one of the smartest women I know. So if technology fails us, she's going to be the person that can restore banking. <laughs> but eventually, Miss Miss Libby knew that deposit operations just kind of wasn't enough. And she had me assist processing reggae debit card disputes, which, as you guessed it, quickly sent me down the rabbit hole of fraud. So as I mentioned, being in a smaller institution, it allowed me access like to a clear view to see the payment system in a well holistic view. This helped encourage a strategic outlook and a constant need really just to implement process efficiencies. And with this, I learned how to evaluate a process to look more effectively and to see beyond the here and the now, which is truly helped with fraud. So falling down that rabbit hole and looking at exactly what was coming through the payments and what we were losing, things like that, and being able to see like how I could get in front of it was truly just what kind of sparked and fueled my passion. A lot of that resonates with me as well. And I think it does with a lot of other people that are fraud fighters too. Whether you kind of fall into the banking side, the fintech side, the e-commerce side, et cetera. I, at least for me, I know that a lot of the value in what I could provide companies a few years into my career started because I started at the kind of the bottom, right? When you're talking to customers and you're seeing the impact of what happens. And then as you're raising through the ranks, you're like, well, how can we get in front of that? So it doesn't happen at all. Cause I've had those conversations and they're heartbreaking and they're not great for our brand or anything else. So how can we get, so I mean, I really, I really understand that. And I started out in a startup and wore many hats as well. And I've said many times that, well, I certainly wasn't compensated fairly there or (laughs) or rightfully there. If I wouldn't have that job, I wouldn't have all the experience that I do. It would have meant 10 years in six different career fields to get that much knowledge. Exactly. Exactly. I'm very grateful for how my career began. So, you know, about that, like, what was it about fraud, you know, when you started going down that rabbit hole that made you decide this is going to be my career as a fraud fighter? Honestly, I hated living in the mindset of bank losses and liabilities. Hmm. I wanted to get in front of the fraud, stop living in the uninformed, reactive world and move to an educated, preventative world where we can stop the fraud before it can even begin. Sure, some institutions, we can't afford all the high-tech anti-fraud controls, right? But we can talk about fraud anywhere and everywhere. I didn't understand why a fraud was such a problem for so many people, why we weren't hearing more about it in the news. It takes more than one news article or one five-minute segment on the six o'clock news to get the message out. 
I can honestly say for a while, it felt like I was the only person that wanted to talk about fraud. In fact, the word fraud seems to have put such a bad taste in people's mouths that no one wants to talk about it until it becomes a problem. We don't even want to market fraud prevention for fear a member or potential member will associate the financial institution with fraud. However, you know, (laughs) in my experience, if we can present fraud in a holistic, member-focused, positive, enthusiastic light, anti-fraud professionals can prove that investing in anti-fraud program will ultimately pay for itself. I couldn't agree more, obviously, from so many perspectives, right? But you're absolutely right. I constantly see whether it's, I mean, I pick on them a lot, but for, I think, good reason, like whether it's the card brands or regulations or just even individual companies who try to solve problems without ever going to the root cause. And to your point, like when you were working in banking and all that, like the root cause was people not knowing any better. It's not, you know, victim shaming. It's like, hey, if they knew they would have done something better, but nobody told them and they're kind of looking to us to tell them. So I very much agree with that, too. And trying to go to, you know, the root cause of the problem and solve that rather than trying to do everything behind the scenes or everything else in sneaky And then or just acting like it doesn't exist until it does. And then as some companies have been learning, especially in the fintech and the peer to peer payment space over the last couple of years, when you blame or expect your consumers to know better without providing them that information, your consumers are going to turn on you because they're going to say, well, why aren't you telling us about that? Like you see all this. Why are you not saying it? And as far as, you know, the financial institution being synonymous with fraud, we see that a lot in e-commerce and marketplace and fintechs as well well. And, you know, the point is like at this point, especially there's fraud everywhere. And, you know, a few different ways that companies will try to say that they're better than their competition. But one way that I've noticed issuing banks, like the really large banks start doing it is by saying we offer fraud prevention or we offer fraud insurance or whatever, you know, if your credit card is stolen. Now, granted, people in e-commerce are like, yeah, because we're paying for it. But (laughs) there's a reason why those banks are putting so much money into those commercials, right? Because that is a factor now. It may not have made anyone change banks or change credit card companies five, 10 years ago, but now it's a selling point. So same thing with any kind of company, right? That should be, we have a member hub where you can go look at these things or we have a customer or whatever it is, we're providing you with that information. I think everyone just wants to feel safe and be able to trust someone on the internet. And that's what the opportunity is for any kind of company to be able to do that. Right. And I think too, with those bigger corporations, when they are putting that message out, it's really good, at least for fraud fighters that are in smaller institutions, because the consumers are now going to ask for it. Yeah. You know, if large ex financial institution can offer me this prevention, why can't you? You're my, you know, hometown bank. You're my mm-hmm. small one state credit union. You're not spread throughout. Why can't we control it here? And so I look to that as from the fraud fighter side as, yeah, go ahead. Keep advertising it. Right. Because I would love for me to hear just from all consumer sides to say, hey, we want that accountability in our financial institutions. And then that's going to push for this more anti-fraud culture to build up. Let's start in financial institutions. I just, yeah, I I digress. You and I are both so good at that. But that's also one reason what makes us good fraud fighters too. We can have seven different thoughts at the same time and and work on them at the same time and then go back to, you know, wherever we go. But no, I completely agree with you. I think it also offers an opportunity to be able to educate, sorry, marketing departments. But, you know, I think a lot of it is kind of old school marketing thinking where, well, consumers don't care of fraud. Consumers don't care about that or they'll associate us with the bad stuff or they don't care about safety. Well, I think that more and more they are for a lot of reasons. So, I mean, obviously you're preaching to the converted over here, but, you know, it's something that I, I always love to hear when somebody gets that passion not just to fight it on the back end, but to educate people both internally and externally. And we're going to dive into that in just a minute. But I think one of the things that most of us enjoy about fraud fraud is that every day is different. And one thing that I like about fraudology is that I get to talk to fraud fighters in lots of different areas. And so not everyone knows what a financial crimes investigations officer does. So what does a day in the life, you know, look like for you in your current role? So high level, I 
provide enterprise-wide leadership of a comprehensive financial crimes risk management program that I created, enhancing our strategic positioning of financial crimes efforts uh, across the entire credit union. I assess the inherent level of risk credit union services may present and provide suggestions to management for ways to minimize member impact and loss to the credit union. I investigate, of course, financial crimes perpetrated against the credit union or its members. And a large portion of my job includes researching and identifying all possible avenues to the recovery of funds obtained by those financial crimes. And of course, cooperating with law enforcement to catch the bad guys. And however, you know, like you said, no day is like the other, which does make it fun and interesting. But my fraud program is it's decentralized. So that means it I don't have a team that directly reports to me. Instead, I am a resource to the various business unit owners. So while I am reviewing a process or a procedure, I'm also being asked to assist with the suspicious transaction or, you know, put a double, another set of eyes on something. And while I do make recommendations, the decision, of course, ultimately lies with that business unit owner. But I love being able to be that resource. And it sounds like you really get that on the ground perspective of what new crimes are targeting your consumers or your institution while also getting to educate and evangelize on like a higher scale to try to prevent a future attack from impacting a member or anyone in your organization. Is that... Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Because it's just like any time that there's any kind of event, one of the things that I do is I'll look at it and kind of basically provide a post event, like what happened and then what were our takeaways? Like what did we learn or what should we learn or take away from this that we can either put something in place? You know, is there a procedure that needs to be implemented, you know, on the front lines to say, hey, if this comes in, you know, here's how we should handle it. But being able to offer that on the executive level, but also just to the direct business unit owner to say, hey, here's something that I noticed and here's my suggestion for how we can fix it. Now, it's up to you to decide if you want to implement it or not. However, it's highly recommended. (laughs) (laughs) That's something that I do a lot with chargebacks as well, or that I have done a lot in my consultancy where I'm looking at root cause analytics and looking at, okay, why did they come in? And then how can we prevent them from coming in before? And to me, I just thought that that was kind of normal, but I've learned that that's actually a pretty specialized skill to be able to kind of reverse engineer what happened and then say, where could we have identified this? What when somebody was talking to a teller or they were calling our customer support or they were doing you know, some weird transfers in their bank account, like what was the thing that could help us identify it so that it doesn't happen again? And then educating that out. I think that's so important. And along that line of just like educating it out, I mean, one of the biggest challenges for people in fraud prevention or or trust and safety, like within their organizations is to communicate the importance and the impact of financial crimes and to kind of get them in quotation marks, like to care about identifying and preventing fraud that they might bump up, you know, bump up against in their roles and, and they may not realize it. For example, the customer service representative who may have a customer asking a lot of questions about an order that was canceled by the fraud department, they might be trying to figure out, well, how did they catch me? How can I get around them next time? Or a bank teller who doesn't stop to wonder why their customer deposits, you know, so many different checks in different amounts, all from different areas of the country. And this is something that you've worked hard on and done a really good job at within your current organization. So first, what were some of the ways that you worked to become a trusted resource throughout your organization? Well, thank you, first of all, for the compliment. I appreciate it. But so the push for an anti-fraud professional at my credit union began, of course, with the uptick in fraudulent activity occurring within the online banking platform. This is where I would look at the crowd and say, can I get an amen? (laughs) And I feel like we could all agree online banking has just become a true thorn in all of our sides. So while an easy fix to reduce our risk or fraud exposure would have been to implement hard limits across the membership, I knew that was not going to be the ultimate solution. Thus, if I if I did do that, it would make me and my program very unpopular with the whole credit union members and, and staff alike. You'll learn as you go, or especially I learned as I went, that fraud 
has to make friends. Hmm. You know, I had to ask myself, how can I mitigate fraud losses without impacting our members? I reverted back to my prior life where I was both business unit owner and fraud mitigator for the smaller institution. And, you know, if I could work collaboratively with the business unit owners here and prove that my plan wasn't to expose where they were weak or their products were weak, but instead show I together with them, you know, we could create process efficiencies as well as fraud mitigation. This would then prove the value of having a holistic approach to fraud prevention and I can make a new friend. So this begins with a conversation with the business unit owner, right? And a shadow day. You have to get into the weeds. You have to look and see how things are processing. So I would conduct a review of our internal processes and system settings. And when I did that, I noticed that there were some reservations amongst the department asking or, you know, when using a particular automated feature, which of course resulted in longer processing times due to extra scrutiny on items that needed to be reviewed. The concern within the department was how well the parameters were working and if they, you know, what were they actually looking for? They didn't understand it, which kudos to them for not just blindly clicking, okay, approve all of these. Right. Truly did it because they didn't, you know, agree with it or, you know, wanted to make sure that they had those, you know, that we were doing what we needed to do. So Mm. I commended them from the start, but I reviewed the parameter settings, which, It did, in fact, indicate that current processes would have exposed us to higher risk items. Mm. So adjusting the settings would allow the organization to accept these items as risk had been further mitigated, including the human error aspect, which can be whenever we're manually looking at something and just could be someone that's new or someone that truly has had a rough day and they're just ready to go home. You know, getting rid of that human error aspect and having it where, okay, anything that now is in the needs to be reviewed, those are actual items that need to be reviewed Mm. instead of some that really are low risk that we shouldn't even be reviewing. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. So I was able to show that by relying on the tools and services that we were already paying for, business units will gain stronger, usable metrics that would enable the system to produce accurate risk scoring. This enhancement would allow for proper risk item review and would create, of course, more efficient processing times. So through open communication and collaboration with business unit owners, we can remove the stigma that anti-fraud and risk professionals want to block every transaction Mm. or cause delays in productions and service offerings. You know, we can instead prove that our goal ultimately is to offer a safer and more secure product, you know, but it, but it doesn't stop with my peers, right? I also had to win the approval of senior management. Well, one of my initial goals was to shift the mindset of our leaders from frustrated leader to enthusiastic supporter. 
Hmm. I needed to create a fraud report that not only offered a quick at-a-glance review of the trends in the data, but also provided a thorough explanation to answer a question before it could even be asked. To look forward to the monthly and quarterly fraud reports instead of thinking, oh goodness, how much did we lose this month? It's now, <laughs> oh, what wins did we have this mm. month? What were we able to prevent and recover this month? So, you know, like I said, I wanted to give our executive team an opportunity to see how our losses look without having to, to read the entire report. So I went to my CFO and I said, how can I make this report useful for you? Hmm. What are you looking for? Really, I had to ask questions. And the answer was simple. Do the math and keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. Provide the answer so that we don't have to go looking for it. And that's what we did. Together, she worked with me and we kind of got some numbers right, which is what they were looking for. And, you know, the fraud report begins with a quick at a glance look into the losses as a whole. Not only can they see where we are year to date, but they can see how fraud prevention is performing in the various products. I offer a variance comparison to the previous year to date losses both in percentage and dollar amount. A quick summary into the product's performance let executive management know that the primary focus of the fraud program will be given to the areas that pose the greatest risk. Throughout the remainder of the fraud report, I give a deep dive, of course, into each product or service, how it's performing, what losses were mitigated, where do we take losses, and any updates to projects specific to the products. Hmm. Each update throughout the report gives a clear picture into our continued efforts in fraud mitigation. Finally, an overview of the entire fraud program is at the end. So basically what I can't categorize into products and or services, but I feel is important to share with the executives, like what's being done in the fraud program. Fraud alerts are an example so that we don't have to have, I don't have to spam everybody's email <laughs> inbox full of emails about fraud alerts. Instead, we created a SharePoint where we compile all the latest fraud alerts in an easy to access platform. And then a look into the department trainings to show how we are working with the various departments and what the collaborative efforts look like. I think all of that is so smart because instead of going out to you know peers and cross-functional teams as well as leadership and saying, hey, here's your monthly fraud report. You know, you first did the work and you first sat down, you know, the, how can I make this better for you? How can, you know, how can this be usable for you? What does it need to have? And then it also provides you with the opportunity to share wins. And, and prioritize what you share on the report, right? Whether it's prioritizing right. it so that they can just look at it quickly at a glance or whether it's also saying, hey, I'm going to put our wins, our recovered losses, our prevented losses at the top before I actually say how much money we won because we need to celebrate or we lost because we need to celebrate the wins or however you do it. I know for me, when I you know was at that startup, providing a monthly report, just kind of like a health check on, you know, for us, it was incoming chargebacks and write-offs and things like that. I was able to really see such a big difference. And I would often put, you know, these were our numbers last month because we were a startup. We didn't have year over year performance. So instead it was what was last month compared to this month and being able to see that trajectory going down was Helpful. And then I often found that they became talking points for my leadership when they talked with investors or they talked with, you know, their peers or they talked to the bank. They'd say, you know, well, our chargebacks went down by X percent since last month because of this, this and this because they saw it in my report. Have you seen that happening as well? Yes. And actually, it's so it's funny. So this was not something that I was able to implement right away. Right. So, you know, you mentioned not having year over year data. Fraud wasn't tracked the way that I track it now before I was here. And so I also didn't have year over year, but I was hired in December of 2020. So shortly thereafter, I was able to start tracking the way that I felt it needed to be tracked. And so now I'm finally at a place where I actually do have year over year data and being able to show that. But what's really been helpful and at least what I've heard is that, you know, they can look at it at a glance and say, okay, this is our losses. Great. Good to know. But they're also able to go back to that report. So should an, mm -hmm. another financial institution reach out and say, hey, what's going on here? They don't have to reach out to me to say, Haley, how do our right. fraud losses look? Instead, <laughs> you know, how, how do we look in check fraud? They're going to be able to go back to the fraud report, equipping them, right? And, and providing my executive team members with all the answers 
so that they don't have to read the check fraud update and say, oh, okay, so here's where we are, but rely on me or wait for a response. They instead are empowered, I'll say, and have that data and information right there with them. Which is so important. I think, you know, you and I both are constantly looking for ways to improve processes. And I think one of my least favorite phrases in the world, and I would imagine it's one of yours too, is the worst reason to do something. Well, I guess it's this is a phrase that I say a lot, but the worst reason to do something is because we always did it that way. It <laughs> drives me, you see, I knew it. It drives me crazy too. It's like, ah, that doesn't mean it's right. Like it doesn't mean that whoever created that for, or maybe they created it before and it worked then for whoever was the CFO and whoever was the operations and all that. Or, or maybe if we're talking about processes that cross-functional teams do within your organization, it might've worked for them then, but it doesn't work now. So it actually, I was kind of laughing because in addition to kind of going upstream to the fraud and trying to prevent that through education, and, you know, really transparency and learning from each person, you're also kind of preventing a lot of one-off questions to you and you're allowing them to do it, which it doesn't mean like, oh, it's because I don't want to help them. It's because, well, it can take time for my leadership to have to reach out to me and have me reach back. If somebody just calls them, they can go, oh, I have this. And I would imagine that every time they pull that up or, you know, they use it in something, they're thinking, oh, thank God Haley changed these reporting, <laughs> these reports because they're so much easier. I think it reinforces, you know, that you gave them the information they needed to do their job. And I think that really is important. And then I also just wanted to highlight the fact that you do shadow days. That is something that I've done, you know, in consulting quite a bit, where that's one of the first things I ask is, hey, I need to sit with different members of your team. I need to understand how fraud impacts them. And they probably have some good ideas. I mean, there's been more than a few times where I'm talking to like, you know, somebody at customer service or someone that probably had never been asked within the company, like, hey, why do you think we have more fraud right now. And there was a situation where I just randomly came to me, but like one of the companies I did like a, like a two day workshop with at their company, it was really to understand why their chargebacks were spiking and then provide some root cause analytics and, and provide some preventative measures up front. And we've been talking all day and stuff. And this guy who was, was just very quiet in the room and, and kind of a lower analyst said he hadn't said anything. And so I called him, I kind of said his name and I was like, Hey, you know, like, what do you think? And he said, well, I knew I heard from someone in customer service that they're now offering, instead of doing full payment refunds, they're now offering a store credit and it expires in 30 days. So that might be why we have more chargebacks. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, why didn't you volunteer this? But, you know, sometimes you just have to ask them that would do it. You know, if, if I returned a pair of shoes and I didn't get a refund back on my credit card, instead I was told, well, here's the money you can only spend on our website in the next 30 days. And and if that 30 days expires or if there's nothing else I want on that website, yeah, I'm probably calling my bank to get a charge back. Right. But nobody had asked. Well, and well, in having that deposit operations mind frame, yes, you know, it's important to ask why we're doing something because, mm -hmm. you know, you go and sit with someone and you <laughs> say, hey, you know, from an internal controls perspective, one, from risk, from transactional risk, you know, things like that. But just saying, so why do you pull that report every day? And yeah. like, I don't I don't know. Well, that that's a problem. Like we we need to know why we're doing it. Because once you understand your why, you understand that you're a valued person in mm -hmm. the team. Like if we just do it because we think that, oh, it's just something that I have to do, but you don't understand that it's valuable. What you're doing actually is for a purpose. Like you serve a purpose by being here. You're yeah. not just someone that's, that's pushing reports or doing this or putting an X on the box. You know, you're actually doing something that's needed to, to keep the wheels rolling. Right. You know? And so asking that question and then helping them figure out the why, or at least, you know, pointing them in the right direction to find that, that answer, then that empowers them truly. Because now they know. Yeah, it probably leads to, you know, employees sticking around and everything else. I couldn't agree more. And I think it also, you know, if they're able to explain the why, then it helps you understand, okay, then that makes sense why you do that. Even if it may not make sense to me, it makes sense for your business or whatever. But then there's other situations where it's like, well, you know, I was sitting with you and it took you like, you know, over an hour to pull that report. Have you ever talked to, you know, our data warehouse team to see if we can do this in a faster way, you know, by providing just some thoughts and tips on how to help them be more efficient 
patient, as well as to understand when they might have an opportunity to, you know, spot something and, and say, hey, that looks weird, that it just continues to empower them. And I do think that, you know, people need to feel like they have a purpose and, and that there's a reason that they're going to work every day. They're not just a cog in a wheel. And right. that probably also helps not just, you know, with themselves, but because you were able to kind of help them discover that why and really reinforce that it then builds that allyship too, like you said, right? And it's so important. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for so many fraud fighters is like, how do I get them to care? How do I get them to listen? You know, and well, first you have to listen. First, you have to care. That's really right. what I say. <laughs> exactly. Because um, it's worked for me and I know it's worked for so many other people. And so speaking of that, like speaking of getting them to care and all of that, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast was because you had reached out to me about something that you had done based on one of the episodes I did like months ago. And I was just blown away by your initiative. So can you share a little bit about the different programs you've started within your organization to spread awareness about different scams that may be targeting, you know, your members or the financial institution itself? Sure, sure. So I wanted to provide true transparency hmm. to to my teammates with internal reporting. Again, it's the why, right? You, you can't expect someone to understand the importance of reporting if you aren't willing to explain the why. There was the yes. secrecy mm. in SARS, right? There's so much secrecy. Mm. Well, what happens afterwards? Like, how do I know it's even done any good? In which BSA and fraud professionals that I've talked to, they're like, we don't even know what happens afterwards once we report it. Right. right. But, but you do know what happens internally. Mm. And so why can't we, you know, explain what happens when a UAR is submitted? And so that's what we did. So we explained that when a UAR is submitted, it notifies us of suspicious activity that only frontline team members are able to spot. Mm. We're then able to closely monitor an account for fraud and, and AML trends. And it allows a chance to review and to determine if additional action is warranted in safeguarding our members' financial security, which is why it's so important for our team members to keep their guard up and complete a UAR form in its entirety, focusing not only on the transactional history, but the behavioral aspect is member-facing teammates are constantly interacting with members and it's important truly to report anything that's out of the ordinary. So I'm just curious, you're so right about that. And, you know, I think that happens in so many different other companies too, where there's like this secrecy around it. And, you know, you have to fill out this form, but you don't know what happens to it or why it happens, et cetera. But also knowing that there are people within I mean, and I'm one of them. I I know these terms only because I try to learn as much as I can about everything. But could you just like a couple sentences on what UAR is and SARS and all that for? Because in e-commerce, we don't have the regulations for AML and compliance. That can be argued a whole other day, especially on gift cards. But can you explain like what those are or an example of when they get filled out and and why it'd be important for those frontline people to really understand why and, the, and then kind of understand what happened to it afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. So for, I'll say for our internal reporting, I'll start with that. Yeah. Unusual activity referral, right? right. That's, that's going to be something that's internal. And we wanted to name it something different because there was just such confusion, even with like the mm. transaction threshold, right? So, and I'll go into what that is in just a moment. Yeah. But unusual activity doesn't have to even have a dollar amount. So if someone comes in the credit union, one of the branches, and they stand there and they look around and then they walk out side and they don't come back in. Hmm. That's unusual. Mm. It's good to let us know so that we can let our, you know, physical security and safety manager know he can pull footage. He can look at the car and you never know that person might be planning to rob us. Yeah. So report that. Us, right. Right. Mm. So, or there could be that someone brings in an elder person and they don't walk up with them to the line, but they sit down and then they walk them outside. Well, maybe that's odd because that person's never had somebody with them before. And, you know, report that maybe the maybe the transaction is is good, but maybe their health looks like it's deteriorated. Maybe they look like they're not in the same mental state that they were last week when they came and cashed their SSI check. So let's let's look at that behavioral aspect, the the look of the member. And it's not just safeguarding their financial security, but it's also looking out for their well-being. Mm -hmm. We focus on family. We are family helping family. That is what we are at my credit union. And that's what I love most about it. So being able to just say, hey, this is your grandmother that's walking in, right? And and that's really honestly how I look at all 
fraud is I think of it happening to someone that I love. Yeah. And how how do I want them to be handled in a branch if they're reporting fraud? How do I want them to be handled over the phone? We have to look at that. We have to look at every member as our family. And that's one thing that we have to do. So when you're reporting that unusual activity, just look for something that's out of character. You know these people because the, the ones that are coming in the branches, they're the ones that want that relationship with the people on the inside. It's not just a, a, we are in a digital world, but we have some of those that love that face-to-face connection. And so we have to do our part. So it, unusual uh, activity referral is that makes just perfect, reporting internally. That makes that makes perfect sense. And, and I love that you, you know, said that it's unusual activity referral isn't just, you know, the transactions, right? It's not just the numbers and the reporting that maybe an analyst that's working in the corporate office could identify. These are things that you know, humans are looking at and saying, huh, they've never come with that person before. And they didn't introduce them to me like they did the last time their grandchild came in. Like, Who's escorting them to the bank to do a withdrawal? And and just, hey, heads up. And then if you have that, in addition to the numbers and the data and all of that, it really helps put the piece together. And that goes back to empowering the people on the front lines. I mean, exactly. I could talk for hours about that because, you know, especially with social engineering, fraudsters sure like to empower the people on the front lines. They know how much power they have. So we need to turn it around and, and have you know them use that power for good and not be manipulated. Uh, yeah, for sure. Well, and, you know, I'll give a quick example, but I had a branch that the teller, she reported to us that this one person just really made her feel uncomfortable because unfortunately in this situation, he was just trying to flirt mm. with them. And he was like, you know, <laughs> unsuccessful. You know, yeah, it was, you know, I could, I could rob this place, be no oh. problem. That is not something you tell no. a, a bank employee, a, you know, someone at the credit union. You don't was trying to that. brag about that. Brag. And, you know, it made her feel I, very uncomfortable. Bank teller that way before? Uh, like, I, right. I, I'm trying to figure out what bank teller would be like, oh, wow, tell me more. You're oh, so tell smart. Me more. <laughs> so, you know, wow. and, and so the teller sent that in and, right. you know, me, not just saying because I'm female, but also because I'm female, you know, I grabbed that up real quick and I let her know, I sent her a message right away and I was like, hey, first of all, is this the guy? I pulled camera footage and I was like, is this the guy? And she was mm-hmm. like, yes. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad someone's looking into it. I was afraid no one would. Right. And so just providing mm-hmm. that yeah, other comment that, just to right. say, hey, I'm looking into this. I don't want you to think that we're not taking you seriously. Right. And so, now, you know, encourage you to do it next time. And exactly. next time might be even more serious, right? As soon as right. like it goes into a suggestion box and they never hear about it again and they don't know if anyone read it, are they going to put another suggestion in there that could change your business? Probably not. Probably. Same with this. Huh. Yep. And so a SAR is a suspicious activity report. And right. I'm going to quote directly from our website here. <laughs> so a financial institution is required to file a suspicious activity report no later than 30 days after the date of initial detection of facts that may constitute a basis for filing a suspicious activity report. Under the Bank Secrecy Act, BSA, financial institutions are required to assist U.S. government agencies in detecting and preventing money laundering and keep record of cash purchases of negotiable instruments, file reports of cash transactions exceeding $10,000, and report suspicious activity that might signal criminal activity, money laundering, tax evasion, etc. That's the external reporting. Yes. The report so, to the U.S. government to say, hey, this this falls into one of the things that we need to let you know about because they transfer money or they deposited more than 10000 or whatever it is, they're filing it. Right. And so when we give that annual BSA training and they hear that, the dollar threshold, they're like, oh, well, then I don't need to report this. And mm-hmm. then we're not notified. And that was one of the whole reasons why we changed our form to be UAR versus SAR mm-hmm. so that we mm-hmm. could train our minds to to shift from thinking outside of that threshold. Let's no dollars have to be involved at all. Hmm. If something just seems odd, if someone calls into MSC and they don't sound like themselves, you know, we talk to these people, we, again, we try to be family focused. Right. And so if someone doesn't sound the same or the conversation doesn't go the same way it usually does, then report that. Let us know because then that lets us know, hey, was there a file maintenance change recently? Did they update their phone number? Mm. Are they connected to online banking? Do we need to make sure that they don't have access to bill pay or something so that in the event a fraudster has this access that they're able to then send out funds like so that helps us mm. and providing those examples lets them know oh hey if I report this then I could potentially help my member and yeah again, that's 
that's our main goal. So are you, you're then having them fill out UARs to your, to you, your team or to you, and then you're deciding if it's over the thresholds for a SAR, then that gets turned into a SAR and goes out. But otherwise it's also just for internal notifications and you might note it in the case management system and no biggie, but then another, like a really suspicious transaction happens right after that. Oh, yep. The teller said that that person sounded different or, you know, whatever it was. And really that's one of the things too, that I love it. I had a question pose that was like, you know, how much are we getting that's false positive? And I'm yeah. like zero, really zero percent. And I say that because <laughs> while a case may not be created later, something mm-hmm. connects us to that original alert. And then we're able to see like the whole process of how it happened. Yeah. So then whenever it starts up again, again, lessons learned, we know that at call A, when they sound different, that's when we immediately need to put something on hold because yes. we have to do our job in safeguarding our members' financial security. That goes to your process, process improvements and all of that. Exactly. It, I see exactly how they can all fit and make so much sense. But right. not everyone would think of that, right? A lot of people are just, oh, let's do whatever everyone else does or, oh, we'll probably have too many complaints. But I think the other, you know, in addition to having those small puzzles, pieces, like you said just a minute ago, it also reinforces and encourages those tellers to continually let you know because you never know. Like while that one instance may have been flirting, you never know if, you know, you hear something else and it really is that. So there are so many times when people are discouraged to say things. Right. And And it's so funny, you mentioned encouraging. Yeah. And so in 2021, when we updated the name, we also at the same time introduced an employee encouragement program for reporting the unusual activity being rewarded for a job well done can can go a long way. Yeah. Um, even with a simple Scooby snack. And <laughs> that's what we do. So and our Scooby snacks are they come equipped with a handwritten note of appreciation that says thank you for whatever, whatever they did, you know, and it's it's written because it's thoughtful. And I want them to know that I care and I appreciate what they've done. And subsequently, our internal reporting actually increased by 24% year <laughs> over year through offering that program. Of so, course it did. I'm so excited about that. So do you call the note a Scooby snack or you're actually like baking cookies or what, like what, so what are they getting? My Scooby snacks, they are basically, I buy like a little silo bag. Um, yeah. I think that's what you call it. So, and solidary, I, or like a little, yeah, like, like a cellophane bag. bag. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so what I put in it is luckily Scooby Doo's making a comeback. I don't know if you've noticed. Yeah. Yeah. In the grocery stores everywhere. That's- Oh, yeah, yeah. Like so great graham cracker treat. Yep. Oh, so yeah. we've got the graham crackers. <laughs> Lord, I can't even talk. Graham cracker treat and the Scooby snack gummies or just something simple. Like I'll just go and get a box of the fun size Cheez-Its and, oh, yeah. you know, just a little Rice crispy treat and a little bit of candy. But then my notes, my cards actually read. I had one here. And what did I do with it? But they read they would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for you. So that's oh. one thing if they prevent fraud. And the yeah. other is the difference between something good and something great is the attention to detail. And so they are able to spot something. And so that's what's on one side of the card. And then the other side, of course, is blank. And that's where we write the handwritten note of appreciation. And it goes a long way, truly. I could see people in e-commerce implementing that in customer service. I mean, obviously it'd be harder if customer service is overseas or outsourced, but, you know, or in other areas of the business. I did something similar when I you know, ran a very small, lean fraud team for the startup, but I was also the co or the assistant manager to customer service. And so I would often do little things like that too. When they would talk with different, you know, when they'd say, hey, this guy sounds weirder. He's asking a lot of questions or, you know, I have this chat and the IP is in a whole other continent, but yet they're trying to have something shipped to Kansas instead of, you know, where their credit card is registered in Idaho. Like, hey, this is weird. And like doing things like that. And it, it is, it does go such a long way. And I think all of these quote unquote little things are what leads to really big progress and a lot of prevention. And you get to learn more about to do this, you know, the things. That is it for the first part of my conversation with Haley. I have no doubt that you're ready to hear the second part, and you will in just two days. That episode will be out on the 20th of October, the Thursday of this week. If you're listening to this episode when it first came out, 
Otherwise, if Thursday's episode is already out, just go ahead and go on to that next episode. In that episode, she talks a lot more about the internal podcast she created and what that looks like and what some of the benefits have been. Honestly, it's not something I had thought of, but it is so brilliant. And I think that it could be a great opportunity for a lot of different companies to help spread fraud awareness to their employees who will then spread it to their customers and just so many things. We'll also talk about how she is working on a statewide initiative with the governor of South Carolina to bring more awareness to fraud and scams. And she will be giving a call to action to all of you to get involved with the upcoming Fraud Week, which I believe is in November. So there's a lot more information on that coming up in the next episode. I'll talk to you then. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.